You're watching Deprogrammed. My name is Harrison Pitt. I'm a writer for the European Conservative, and I'm delighted to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest, Connor Tomlinson, who is a host at The Lotus Eaters, a well-subscribed podcast with which you're likely to be familiar. Now, Connor, uh, Evan and I were both interested recently to read your uh, piece in The Critic, where you had the temerity suge to suggest, despite being a man yourself, mm -hmm. that it's probably women who've suffered most from the sexual uh, revolution. I'm going to read a quote from it quickly because I'd like you to explain this. Um, quote, the endless search for autonomy will leave you sterilized. Only when sex-embedded power dynamics are embraced as complementary will sex and civilization be good again. Can you explain to our viewers what you mean by that? So, as I put in the article, this idea came out of a conversation I had with Mary Harrington of where she objected to Generation Z and some of the later millennials performing as trad wives and the like on TikTok. And she said it was some kind of artifice of a tradition that was a bit of a economic cultural aberration because the exact amount of money that the boomers had, the disposable capital um, in the 50s and 60s to allow women to stay at home and, and be purely confined to the domestic sphere was a blip in time compared to how men and women operated for, for hundreds of years. And she said, in contrast, the left wing version of that is quote unquote kink culture. And to put it PC. Um, there is a reason, for example, that Fifty Shades of Grey was one of the best-selling books at the same time that feminism exploded in the cultural zeitgeist. And the reason is, and, and this is what she said, kink is a kind of nature reserve for libs who want equitable power dynamics in every other sphere of life except in, in the bedroom. Their, exactly, put it perfectly. And so I, I said, as, as, I've, as I've been talking to her offline, Accepting and going along with naturally embedded disparate power dynamics is going to be much better than constructing all of your intimate personal and broader economic and political relationships around having a golden parachute that you can pull at all times, which is total financial independence and total emotional independence from someone you're meant to be reliant on. And it's funny, so you've, you've located it in the, in the sexual revolution. Ivan Illich, who's an interesting author, he wrote in the 80s a book called Gender. And he uses gender in a really weird way, and I think we need to, as a culture, retune our language around that because the feminists have captured it as to mean this performative Judith Butler-esque style costume, which is confining men and women. He said, no, the, the distinction between gender and sex is actually a post-industrial problem, of where the industrial revolution was a disjunction from how men and women naturally cohabited worked to stave off privation, collaborated, and had marriages of kind of economic necessity, but also we got along, you know, we were mutually struggling upwards mm. and nobly. As soon as the Industrial Revolution came along and made it so that lots of women couldn't work on their domestic sphere, it outsourced a lot of their work to the public sphere, then that sex distinction was made all the more apparent. And so, because the feminists then came along and said, right, okay, well, women are at a disadvantage, so we need to conscript them into the market, and they need to have complete economic independence. Then you have these pressures to make women compete on the same terms as men. There's a reason that Simone de Beauvoir finished her 800-page tome of utter waffle, The Second Sex, with the word brotherhood. And it's because, technologically, culturally, we needed to level out women's reproductive capacity, um, their, their personal interests, you need to propagandize out of them women's personalities, in order so that they can compete for the same resources in the market as men on the same terms as men. And what that's led to is men and women being at each other's throats for the last 50 odd years and people being so completely dissatisfied that now women are turning around and going, well, where are all the good men gone? And 
50.2% of women, I think it was reported in The Guardian last year, have no children by the time they're 30. It's something that Stephen Shaw said, we're going to be facing the, the pandemic of unplanned childlessness of 800 million people mm. by 2050 who wanted kids and didn't have them. And then on the flip side of that, 27% of men 18 to 30 report having no intimate partners in that time. So there's a giant crisis of millennial Gen Z people who have been disserved by the industrial and sexual revolutions who are saying, well, all I wanted was a uh, hundred years ago, I would have had a family and a house. I mean, I'm in this camp, you know, and now what, what has sexual or political liberalism really done for me? How much of it do you think has to do with the fact that we, we in, in the modern world, we, we live amid such, such plentifulness in, in many ways that it becomes easy for people to, particularly if they're older, to, to convince younger people that um, it's almost as though they can have anything and there are no such, thing as, such things as trade-offs in life fundamentally. So if it's something, of, I don't know, for example, uh, most women by the time they hit their 30s will begin to, in, in young women today, but by the time they hit their 30s, they will begin to acknowledge that you know, having a child might not be the worst idea in the world. Mm. You know, th th it's almost as if that natural calling becomes all the more urgent at that time in their lives. Yet if they've lived their 20s in such a way, that they weren't expecting to hit that sort of time horizon, they're going to be extremely disappointed. And I wonder if we're doing a real disservice to young women in particular by convincing them that you can both chase the bag, as it were. You can you can be a sort of you know, a, a career woman, and also you can revert back to your natural calling in your thirties when not when you know it's, it's going to be much harder to, to 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 achieve that form of life at that point. Um, well, men, men and women aren't in a mentally preparatory state to be parents because you've elongated adolescence until your mid-twenties because of education. Mm. And then, uh, again, the entitlement schemes that have been slowly creating an inverse economic and demographic pyramid with the boomer generation. Um, and don't get me wrong, both my grandparents are alive and you know I want them to live in relative comfort. But let's put it this way, the pension system, relative to inflation, <laughs> is not economically sustainable because mm. the money just isn't there. They're taking it directly from us at the moment. And, and so that's, that's going to go kaput. And so us lot, lads, mm. we've kind of got an opportunity ceiling above our head where we're going to be one of the first generations in the world who have more commodities, more disposables mm. at our fingertips than ever, but no actual tangibles. You know, mm. we, don't, we don't have homes. We, many of us don't have homes, don't have families. We don't feel anchored. We're mm. kind of rootless. And so that spread over into the attitude. And this is why I put it at the heart of liberalism. I know there's, there's a hell of a lot of commentators on the right, um, prominent figures. Uh, James Lindsay's one of them, Jordan Peterson and the like. They've pointed out where lots of modern pathologies have their roots in Marxism. And that's totally true for the likes of some of the Beauvoir, the critical race theorists. But Marxism and liberalism are two cheeks of the same post-Enlightenment backside because they're aiming at the same problem. They're aiming at total autonomy, total solvency of the individual from social bonds, and at the same time, the maximum amount of material goods they can get without having to depend on anyone. And that's why liberalism has jumped, sexual economic liberalism, has jumped from the kind of Lockean compromise that they had of where, okay, you give up some of your rights for protections from the state and you can exist, coexist with people cooperatively and peacefully. To Rousseauian liberalism of where, okay, if there is an injustice in society, it is the state's job to iron that out because it is perceived as an incursion on your autonomy because you didn't freely choose the relationship like having a child. That means that you can either outsource it to a surrogate or uh, abort it at any time you so choose and that you, you shouldn't have a, a physiological dependency on that child or you shouldn't even be intimately connected with your own body. So you can mix and match parts um, with trans ideology. This is why the, the Marxists and also, I think it was Mao quote that said, nature is a revolutionary enemy. Well, Jordan Peterson was pretty prescient back in 2018 with Kathy Newman saying, mm. the Maoists and trans activists have the same idea. So, so do liberals. At any point, 
if there is an incursion on your ability to make a free choice, whether that's biological, whether that's relational, then that has to be completely eliminated. Mm. And all that's left us is in, in a listless place of where we're basically Rousseau-Savage, aiming around in a civilization full of abundance, but without anyone to depend on. And has that made us happier? I mean, I can't say it has. So what you're saying is liberalism is fundamentally unsexy? Yeah, well, well. So, so Mary Harrington decided to tweet out my article with with a meme that oh, she said was was too toxic for Maine, but she just decided to roll with it. And and her one was make government kinky again, which was kind of the thesis I got to there. And and the reason you jumped to that, and that was one of the paragraphs I put in there, was okay, if abstract hypotheticals like total informed consent, which again the government don't seem to be wanting to give us regarding vaccines and lockdown, but neither here nor there. Um, if that abstract hypothetical is being pursued, then okay, if your rights are on paper, if they're abstractly codified, but you aren't substantively represented in parliament, you didn't get what you voted for, um, Brexit in name only, for example, mm. every single manifesto saying we're gonna lower migration and them never doing it. What use are abstract rights and consent on paper if you're not living necessarily a good life? Yes. If the heuristic for a good life is how much GDP can you contribute every year as a consumer or a contributor? If you don't have an intimate family, if you're not belonging to a community, if you don't feel you have substantive representation in parliament or substantive power on the local level, then what use is an abstract hypothetical like consent or freedom? And so It goes back to, there's a wonderful quote by Matthew Arnold, which I think is incredibly instructive and illustrative on this point. And I agree with most of what you just said about Marxism and liberalism. That goes back to one of um, my, my favorite quotes by Matthew Arnold, which I think is, which I think is extremely instructive and illustrative on this point, where he, he makes it very key that freedom isn't you know, an unalloyed good unto itself. He says, freedom is a fine horse to ride. It's an instrumental good in that way. It's something that we need in order to flourish. But it is, it is not flourishing unto itself. He says, freedom is a, uh, is a fine horse to ride, but to ride somewhere. So w one thing that I certainly prefer about the Anglo-American understanding of freedom is that it makes a point of making them plural and enumerating them. So it talks about basic freedoms and the, you know, thought, speech, liberty, con like, sorry, thought, speech, um, assembly, conscience, these sorts of things. These freedoms are made in incredibly particular so that they're not, uh, you know, vulnerable to tempting people into thinking that uh, the sort of liberalism they should entertain is one which is in 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 incredibly proselytizing and which is always seeking to corrode any, you know, exactly the sort of social bonds, many of which are just as crucial to our flourishing and maybe involve duty as those basic freedoms themselves. So in order for freedoms in the plural sense and duties uh, to, to, to be brought into, into a, a harmonious realignment requires a continuous uh, tradition rather than you know, a perpetual war against any kind of uh, you know, social bond, whether it's the bond between mother and child, whether it's the bond between citizen and you know, the, the, the national community to which they belong. Once you're in that more you know, dangerous Rousseauian camp, the constant battle cry is always going to be to make the theoretical purity, to make good in practice on the theoretical purity of liberty. And at that point, you're going to be fighting a constant war against everything until even in the present. So, you know, depending at, depending at which point you are in history, you know, the, the, the battle cry will be against something else. Maybe it will be against motherhood in one period of time. Maybe in another period of time, it will be against, um, you know, nationhood. Today, we're even seeing that it's a, it's a battle cry against nature itself and the fact that nature itself imposes limits on people. And the thing I find hilarious about this is that at the same time that we're having these, um, you know, at the same time that this sort of hyper-aggressive liberalism is corroding all sorts of things that are inc inc incredibly valuable, 
it, it's disregarding those customary freedoms like freedom of speech, which are, I think, in fact, very important. So we, we live in a culture which is, um, you know, countenances only fans, but is increasingly queasy about free speech. Hmm. And so what, what kind of freedom is being venerated in, in, in a culture? It's completely topsy-turvy. I think the problem, too, that, that you address in your article, and it's something that we are inevitably going to have to deal with, and this is something that's going to be coming up very quickly on us culturally, and it's going to hit the women first, but then also the men, is like you have the freedom to kind of pick whichever horse you may want and just sort of you know meander around in the stable without actually really going anywhere. But by the time you hit 35 and you realize, Oh, I would actually have liked to uh, made my way to a house and 2.1 kids and you know a loving family. Um, I should have probably started out on that journey seven years ago. Exactly. I think a lot of latent rage, for lack of a better term, is going to be expressed um, by women against men and I think against society in general. And I think we're just basically starting to see that now. I think mm. with kind of some of the uh, I don't know if you guys saw the video of the school teacher um, berating a student about not accepting uh, another yes. one of the students as being cat or cat gender um, in this attempt to kind of proselytize and, and convert past, mm. you know, a teacher's sort of normal acceptable mm. boundaries to, to, to really kind of be a, a devouring mother, as mm. Peterson might say, to, to her own pupils. I think what we're then going to see is this kind of writ large in society, which will be kind of a, I don't have my own kids, but there are kids about, so they're all our kids now. And, mm -hmm. and I think we've actually seen this um, with some of the stuff coming out of, out of America and out of the White House, um, direct from the desk of Joe Biden in the last few weeks, where it's like, these are all our children, we all need to take care of them. It will be sort of a, a collective uh, subsumation of the family mm. in order to satisfy the yes. latent desires of motherhood that we have failed to, um, we've failed to fulfill for many, many women. Well, it's happening over here, and I've, I've done a hell of a lot of research recently for our podcast, the two-hour breakdown on all of the, I say all of, a comprehensive literature review on the psychological, physiological, and economic impacts of daycare, mm. uh, daycare industrial complex. And that was brought on by the fact that Jeremy Hunt has now subsidized 30 hours a week of childcare from nine months to two years old. And frankly, there is no clearer example of liberal market pressures acting as a solvent on the intimate bond between mother and child than that. Because and there's, there's a, a stunning meta-analysis that I looked at in Science Magazine that saw that if babies at the start of the day are taken away from their mother at the peak of their blood cortisol and placed in a daycare setting, not only does the blood cortisol stay really high throughout the day, that becomes their sort of homeostasis of stress level mm. throughout their adolescence. So mass daycare from the 1980s, and we're wondering why there are so many psychopathologies, why the level of antidepressant prescription is, is way, way up. Antidepressants, by the way, one of the leading drugs used in the suicides that they also increase the suicidal ideation of. So we are utterly underserving an entire generation mm. of people for the sake of registering another activity, motherhood specifically, on the economic balance sheet. Because again, homo economicus is the primary yeah. mode of consideration of, of we're, social we're, we're, The idea, the, the classical economic idea that we're fundamentally profit maximizing creatures yeah. ra rather than creatures, r relational creatures, yeah. which is, which is you know, it, it takes one aspect of the human person which needs to be taken into account, the fact that you know, oftentimes we are profit maximizing creatures and it, and it sort of turns it into an ultimate value. It, it ultimately, fe it, it completely uh, fetish fetishizes it. Uh, that's a really interesting, when are you going to be uh, writing on that soon? That's out, it's currently behind the paywall. 
on no oh seasons, but I would I would like to disappointing. I would like to put something out there that makes the data a bit more accessible. I do, see. Do you think there's any credence to the argument that Mary Mary Harrington points it out in her book uh, Feminism Against Progress that back in the day, you know, mothers would uh, they would weave hmm. uh, at home, right, where their kids can kind of run underfoot. But then as soon as everything moved to the factory, right, like you can't have a toddler like running around like heavy machinery. But as we kind of transition into this, uh, I don't know, post office work-life balance with everybody just doing work from home, you know, yeah. you have people like Mary or, or like Louise or, or these kind of these super moms who are able to kind of work and be productive members of society, but mm -hmm. also while surrounded by their family. As long as you have Wi-Fi uh, and a laptop, you can be, you know, you can have six toddlers around you as long as you're able to chime in. Do you think that this will kind of level out this pressure, this sort of economic pressure against against the family? Or do you think that these trends are basically going to continue unabated until people decide to, to buck homo economis as a, as a concept altogether? I think we're at a bit of a fulcrum moment because I think there's great potential there to do a technological version of a reversion to the 1450s mm. of where both members of the household are contributing something to the domestic economy while also the mother can be more flexible, do more part-time, more remote work. Both Mary and Louise, I think, have acknowledged that that is a benefit of women only participating in the knowledge economy. However, that's a really valuable role. Yeah, so I was talking to Mary about this, not to leak DMs, but I said to her, I think I've sort of cracked her book a bit, interrelated with the participation of many women in the knowledge economy. And that is that Simone de Beauvoir, in the second sex, going back to her, and this connects to Rousseau. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir turned around and said, okay, women's domain is not rationality because they've been deprived of the same education as men throughout history. Again, not necessarily my characterization, but it's hers. She says, because women are more likely to believe the anecdote told by a stranger cashing a check in the line at the bank or some confidant in the drawing room than a scientific study, that women's domain is the realm of the magical because they can speak certain inner truths into being. And she means magic there in the same way that, as David Hume had told Edmund Burke, the magic of Rousseau was that even though Rousseau's state of nature promise, his, his year zero uh, total state where you'll have everything provided to you by the general will, but you won't have to rely on anyone for anything, was a bunch of nonsense. The conviction with which he said it, the poetry with which he wrote it, was so powerful it inspired people to go out and eventually do the French Revolution. And so there's a kind of spellbinding in powerful rhetoric. If you dig into Simone de Beauvoir's citations, it's mainly just accounts from psychoanalytic journals. Hmm. Absolutely no ability to verify this, but Simone de Beauvoir has compiled a consensus, a, a confected consensus of stories from women across the second sex, and it's become the feminist Bible. So it redirects that kind of grievance you were talking about earlier, that sort of revolutionary fervor of dissatisfied women that is currently building, has been building since the Industrial Revolution, has been fomented particularly since the sexual revolution that Beauvoir actively endorsed. It's created a self-generative revolutionary class that will lead to men and women being unisex participants in the market. Mm. And so what Mary's done, and, and what Louise has done by onsetting a, a bunch of women my generation participating in the knowledge economy, sharing their story, saying that the pill has ruined my life, saying I wanted kids and I've started too late. It's created a new consensus of stories, quite literally weaving, as she ends in, in the line of her book, a new narrative that is counter to the feminist consensus that has captured an entire generation. So what they've done is quite clever. They've taken Beauvoir's insight, and run with it and done that that weaving that women were doing in the 1450s but through storytelling online and so that's actually a really encouraging thing the only issue there and this is a much broader conversation 
is with the interjection of AI, you're going to have a lot of alienation from a lot of technical jobs, from the service industry, from even the data processing industry. Like a, lo a lot of people have turned around and said, okay, well, it, I, I'm an accountant or I'm a programmer. I guess I better start learning AI prompts instead because I may as well prompt it properly to do my own job for me eventually. Mm. If loads of the knowledge economy and the, the, the vocational economy are, are wiped out, then the other side of it is we do know that there are a bunch of technocrats, whether it's in Davos, whether it's in Westminster, whether it's in the EU, who see us as Novel Harari's phrase, useless eaters, and they're considering what to do with us. And they want us to be the Rousseauian general will state that provides everything, just mm. in the metaverse, so it's powered by renewables, so it's the minimal amount of resources, but the maximum amount of consumption. And so we're, we're at a bit of a, a crossroads here. We could go down the positive road. Unfortunately, there are political powers that would very much like to see us go down the negative road because it's more cost effective in their calculation. And so in, so in answer to, to Evan's question, then it, it's, you know, these, these sort of economic, um, you know, the, the, the various forms of social and economic conditioning that you're describing in terms of bringing about these mentality, they are con it, it's, it, they, they, their effect is more a conditioning effect than a determining effect. It's, it is still fundamentally up to us mm. whether or not, you know, uh, it, you know we, we, do, we could stand to benefit from the, the, the way in which the, no the knowledge economy, as you say, the fact that more people are going to be working from home, that could, you know, if we were to capture, um, if, if we really were to uh, make good on this moment, that could produce a, a, a renaissance in motherhood, couldn't, couldn't mm -hmm. and pro motherhood properly understood. But equally, as you say, there are you know, forces that we need to that we, that we need to fight on the other side. I mean, how do you think we can? Because one thing that one thing that I have noticed that I do think is problematic to use the favourite left wing <laughs> phrase, which is incredibly tedious, but you know, but I think it is problematic. Is that a lot of this conversation? I, I don't usually like playing identity politics. I think mm. I, I think identity politics is, is is for the most part an incredibly corrosive and divisive and tribal thing, and you know, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But when it, when you went, but I, I'm a little more sympathetic to identity politics when it's uh, dealing with with the uh, the differences between men and women because those those differences are, are are real and they need to be taken into account much more than you know. We, we, other other sort of you know uh, dimensions on the on the intersectional cat-gendered children exactly yeah exactly well there you go exactly <laughs> but so with I wonder if it's a slight problem and it's not exclusively true because you ha you do have women like Louise Perry mm. and Mary Harrington in this space and it's very good that and I, I know lots of uh, a good number of young women who are being very influenced by them but particularly on the, on the online space mm. um, you know on on, uh, on on TikTok and these other places I've noticed that a lot of the people leading this conversation tend to be uh, young, uh, almost sort of vitalist men, who, rather than calling on women and men, collect uh, calling them to something higher, seem to like exposing and mocking women. And I was talking to a girl recently about this, and she said, even though I agree that you know sexual conservatism for women is a good idea, just as these men do on these on mm -hmm. these men, on these meninist podcasts, when you speak to a woman. On the, those podcasts, who's twenty-one, and she, let's say she, you know, she slept with twenty-five people, she slept with twenty-eight people. You're speaking there to a woman who's who, who's broken, and by mocking her and exposing her to the ire of the internet, all you're really doing is compounding the the precise shame which has brought about that situation in the first place. And so it's possible for these men to be to 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 to, to win the argument, but to completely to completely lose the battle because all we end up doing is it, it, it's fueling the cycle. Of resentment, I wonder if there are things that uh, we can do better on that score. Because it does seem to me that yeah. a, a lot, a lot of, even though I agree, 
as I say, with a lot of what's being said in that space in intellectual terms, the way it is said does matter. And it's possible to say that without being some kind of cr yeah. cringing lip. Pur <laughs> yeah, purity spiraling on the right is uh, never pretty. Uh, and the people doing it tend to, um, I don't know, I think they tend to reveal themselves more often than they think. Yes. Uh, it's usually just, you know, bitter sort of incel-esque misogyny or, or uh, unbelievably overactivated sort of disgust response exactly. towards any woman who doesn't like fit your sort of perfect characteristics, mm. which is a great way to make sure that nobody will ever touch you and you can add to that 25% uh, of guys under 30 who aren't getting laid. Yeah. Mm. I, so I have a bit of contentious take on this, and that is that I think much like Marxism and liberalism to use the same backside, red pill and feminism are the same. And that is because they are operating in that post-industrial paradigm where both men and women are competing in the unisex market mm. for the same resources. They are yeah. naturally adversarial. If, if you look at most of red pill dating as I resent this hypothetical abstract platonic form of the Jezebel woman, it, if you understand that as them being proximate to a kind of resentment, it all begins to make sense. And that's why they're not, they, they want to win the micro battles rather than the war of re-engendering a kind of solidarity between the sexes so we can get along, so we mm. can have wholesome relationships, so we can have families. Mm. Largely, they define themselves by material success. Absolutely. And, and it, yeah. this, is, this is why the, the body count conquest thing, they never quite get over, is, is unilateral. It's like, okay, this woman slept with, with 20 guys. Now, this is, that's terrible for women, whether it's uh, to do with oxytocin pair bonding, whether that's to do with the, the amount of partners you have before you get married is a, is a predicate divorce, whether that's mm. risk because you don't want, know what kind of guy you're taking home and, and what he might do. And to that extent, the Red Bull community is right to point those sorts of yes. things out. Yeah. But there is a caveat. But also, um, lads don't poison the well. Mm. But you're going out there and doing the exact same thing. Mm. And so do you really want to look your best friend in the eye when you've gone out and slept with his future wife? No. Do not create what is essentially the resentful feminists that are going to walk into some other guy's life mm. as an emotional suicide bomber. Because mm. that's another thing that's engendering this, this mm. class of women that are going to hate men. If, if you're going to go around and say, I'm top G, I'm alpha, look at my Bugattis, again, another material marker rather than a sort of metaphysical wholesome marker, mm. then you're saying, okay, I'm entitled by, by nature of me being wise to whether pick up artist tactic or evolutionary psychology and, and, and biology that I have, I'm entitled to be the conquering warlord while all those betas just you know, languish mm. off into the darkness. Whereas I would rather say, and this was the case for, again, hundreds of years pre-industrial, the family is the triumph of the everyman. And so this is, this is the question. Do we want to go down the red pill path where it's adversarial, or do we want to change our heuristic away from economic, away from liberal concerns, back towards more wholesome community-focused concerns where we put the creation of families as the mm. primary consideration of a nation's success versus line go up, GDP, yes. and the like. I do think, I don't know, maybe it's just the, the waters that I swim in on, on Twitter and see algorithm telling me what I want, but I do think that that kind of pickup artist red-pilled moment has actually largely passed us by. Um, maybe I've, I've just grown out of it, but I think that actually having a family now is seen as like a massive status symbol, especially for guys, because you know that they're tied to something and they're invested in the future. I, I, I've spoken to some pretty wealthy people who would tell me that they would never hire a man for a serious role who didn't have mm. a wife and child. And I think this is going to become much more common, especially as we, over the next 10 years, as we kind of pass um, peak millennialism, can we call it? Like the sex in the city myth is not dead, but it's certainly dying. Um, I think that 
I, don't, I, I, I do think that we're about to see a change now. I mean, we can, we can hypothesize all day about, about the technological influence on if it'll destroy the, the knowledge worker economy. I mean, maybe it'll destroy OnlyFans first. Um, but I think that we're, um, you know, I mean, a lot of technology is, uh, you know, driven forward by, by porn. Yes. Um, but I do think that we're about to see a, a return to tradition, mm. to use kind of a tired old phrase, yes. um, because it will be the ultimate status signal in the, in the reverse, in that we've, I've rejected this, and much like having, um, you know, you can, you can go to the gym and be strong even though nobody has to be anymore. Mm. Um, you can have a family even though you don't need one because it's showing a certain level of commitment yes. and forward thinking and forward planning. We, yeah. And I think that's actually the message to sell these kind of more Chad alpha guys yes. is that you're taking maybe a short-term sacrifice. I don't even know if I would call Quarter it a sacri sacrifice yeah. um, in your 20s, but by the time you hit 35 and you've got a five-year-old and, and a loving wife, um, mm this will be a massive benefit actually mm. to your status mm. and to your career. The thing that I, the thing that I and I, I completely agree with everything you just said, the th but the thing I find most objectionable about, about the Red Pill community, and I agree with what Connor mm. just said as well, is that they, 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 their understanding of the world is fundamentally Darwinian. There's this idea that we are, you know, so to speak, stranded on this isthmus of a middle state, and all we can really do is make use of you know, the, the, w w whatever power we have mm. to advance our own cause, in and it's, again, it's always mm. in material terms. And so, and you'll, you'll notice in the in the Red Pill community as well, they very rarely speak in moral terms. They very rarely speak in terms of you should be called to something higher. This is like the the, the, the Platonist understanding of morality. Certainly, the Christian one as well. Most religions have this idea that yes, of course, we have this sort of human isthmus, but then equally, there's this heavenly realm, and that sort of an that constitutes a regulative ideal, and human beings are called to something higher. Whereas in the red pill universe it's all that gosh it's, it's just completely it's, it's completely competitive it's just what's he got what's he got and it's just a question it's, it's about acquisitiveness and doing the best with what you have and so you'll notice that the way they speak almost always is well if you are a top g and a top g however defined you know you're over six foot or you've got you've got loads of money you've got self-discipline you've got you've been all, arrested in romania you've been arrested in well <laughs> well he has now and he's been charged but anyway um or this sort of thing, then you can, if you yep. can get away with doing these things and that you don't really reap the negative consequences of it, then you know, wh wh why, why should I be called to something higher? We need to get, we need to point to uh, the, the, the fact that what, what use is it um, having all that self-discipline to, to, to go to the gym, to be hardworking, to make loads of money, if in the most important aspect of your life, namely you know, your, your life as a relational being, or whether it's as a father, uh, a wife, that sort of thing, you are completely drowning in your own appetites. Yeah. There's just there's nowhere to go once yeah. you hit it. Like exactly. once you've got the Bugatti and the the three figure body count, it's like what what else is there to do? Like go to four figures in a second Bugatti? Like <laughs> it, it's just boring it's after a certain point. It's like being one of the beautiful ones in the mouse utopia, where you sit around grooming yourself to perfection all day, while your entire civilization is deteriorating into cannibalism and and sterility around you. One of the things that I think is at the heart of this, and this comes back right to the start to the, the liberalism question is, what are you proximate to? And, and this is the divide. Are you a materialist or do you have some kind of metaphysical calling that you exist like a higher ideal in proximity to? This is, this is kind of what C.S. Lewis defines love as. And that is that, okay, if you believe in God, he emanates love, creation was the first act of love, and therefore if you're trying to embody love, you only ever emulating it, but you can't achieve that. So you are in a noble distance 
from the highest possible ideal, the, the creative thing. And so you, your success, your love, etc., can never be too much because you'll never displace that ideal, but you're always trying to reach it. And so it engenders a sense of humility in you. With liberalism, with, with the sort of Sigma male grindset kind of thing, you have nothing above you, it's, it's just you. Mm. And okay, that then comes down to what's in the way of my success? Because you can't quantify autonomy. You can quantify mm. money, you can, you, know, you can quantify body count, but you can't quantify autonomy. And this is why liberalism goes from, from political liberalism where it looks at, okay, is the state impeding on me? To comprehensive liberalism is, is advice, social stigma, relationships impeding on my atomized success? Even if it doesn't have the force of law to it. Exactly, yeah. 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 Is, is, is having a kid going to take away from my career? That was, I think, Michelle Williams got up at the Oscars and said, if yes. I didn't have an abortion, I wouldn't yes. have this statue. Yes. And that, that's it. Could well, trade. <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that's, that's madness. But this is, this is the thing. Everything then becomes a crusade against the only things which are standing in your way because you can't quantify how successful you are. Mm. All you can quantify is who do you resent from standing in your way. For the red pill community, that's that's feminism. For feminism, that's men. For comprehensive comprehensive liberalism, that's largely children or their own biology. Mm. If you don't have a proximate ideal that you coexist with, that you're striving towards, but you know you'll never necessarily reach, you don't have the humility to not dismantle everything in your path. I. I yeah, I do think that we, we, the Red Pill community does deserve a little bit more credit because I, d I don't regard it as just another iteration of liberalism. It certainly has lots of common elements. But one thing that, that they, they, they do have is that they, they, they do have a, a very Nietzschean emphasis mm. on the fact that in order to exercise maximal individual power, you actually need to cultivate certain virtues. And so I think that one of the reasons why it is appealing to young men is because it, precisely because it plugs a lot of the gap that mm. liberalism has has made them feel it you know if you watch Andrew Tate videos and you know and the like they do say a lot of it is quite stirring for young men I can under, and I can understand why you know an, an emphasis on you know hard work and duty that I mean there are certain things that are emphasized there which are to that extent anti-liberal because he's saying look get out of bed do this mm. you know do do be, be self-disciplined cultivate these what Nietzsche would call these knightly aristocratic virtues so that you can exercise maximal individual power don't just be a mediocre you know, um, uh, 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 vassal to your own appetite. The thing, the thing that we need to point out in the rebel community mm -hmm. is that while they emphasise self-discipline in all of those relatively you know, unimportant spheres, in the most important sphere, namely your uh, your life as a relational creature, in, in your embedded in a community with a family, maybe with a wife, maybe with children, like how are you going to, how are you going, like if you can be self-disciplined in the gym. You know, you can be self-disciplined in that domain as well, and it's much more important that you are, because then you're actually, rather than just being some sort of heroic, you know, knight in a vacuum, you're actually contributing to the flourishing of your own community. And like, what could be more, uh, you know, what what could be more galvanizing to young men than to tell them that that could be their future? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Bugatti is just a car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, gents, I mean, I could do this. Uh, I, I always say this, but I could do this for much longer, but unfortunately we are out of time. Uh, Connor, you must come back again. Yeah, mm -hmm. happy to. Yeah, one, of, time for us. one of these days. Um, Evan, thanks as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. We shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. 
As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.